I think one of the things about getting older for me is that my internal voices are much kinder towards myself. I'm able to stay with myself and take chances because it's not that big a deal if it doesn't work. I'll just like try it again. Hello, print friends, and welcome to the 11th episode of Pine Copper Lime, the internet's number one printmaking podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. I release an episode every two weeks, and on the off weeks, I publish an article on the Pine Copper Lime website featuring images and maybe a bit more information about the artists I'm going to interview. This has been a big couple of weeks over at PCL headquarters in Sydney. We celebrated reaching 10,000 followers on Instagram by giving away a Ben Barris etching, and I launched the Pine Copper Line Patreon page. Now, I know, I know, Patreon. Why buy the cow if you're getting the milk for free, am I right? But I have tiers starting at just a dollar a month, and there's some pretty fun gifts I'm giving away as thank yous, including buttons, stickers, personal serenades, tote bags, good vibes, postcards... And of course, bonus content, in the form of mini-sodes with tidbits from printmaking's history. As some of you may know, before I took up the glamorous lifestyle of a podcast host with all of its fast cars and loose women, I was a humble art historian who got her master's in the history of printmaking. So, I have some super interesting anecdotes up my sleeve, such as the tradition in Japanese woodcuts of tanukis using their gigantic testicle sacks to go fishing or catch birds. Or, say... Albrecht Dürer taking the first copyright case to trial against artists who forged his woodcuts. So, if you'd like to join that party, head on over to the Pine Copper Line Patreon page and take a peek. And of course, as always, there's a link in the show notes. Now, if for one reason or another the support that you can offer is more emotional than financial, don't you worry about a thing. I see you, I feel you, and I appreciate you. And it would really help me out if you could tell a friend or two about Pine Copper Lime or leave a review on your podcast app of choice. That kind of support is truly invaluable for helping Pine Copper Lime grow and bringing our community a little closer together. Printmaking forever. Shun the non-believers. Join the party. My guest this week is Wendy Orville, whose stunning monotypes are unlike anything else out there today. If you haven't had a look on the Pine Copperline website or Instagram yet to see them, I highly encourage you to do so now and prepare to have your mind blown. They are dramatic and emotional landscapes which are full of tension and from a distance are often mistaken for photographs. Wendy herself, as you'll soon hear, is an absolute delight and is incredibly self-aware when it comes to her practice. We talk about the nature of pursuing making something that is truly great how motherhood changed the way she worked by making her a more relaxed and intuitive artist, and how she came to the place where she can engage with her time in the studio as a curious observer rather than a harsh critic. So sit back, relax, and prepare to find your new life coach in Wendy Orville. Hi, Wendy. How's it going? Really well. Nice to talk with you, Miranda. Yeah, thanks for joining me. So I know you from showing your work at Davidson, but people may not be familiar with you. So if you want to just give us a little intro about kind of overview of sort of where you're at 
right now and, and who you are. So I'm, I'm, my name is Wendy Orville. I'm a, a monotype artist, although I also do a lot of drawing. I live on Bainbridge Island, Washington, which is a 35-minute ferry from Seattle. I live here with my family. My, I have two kids and uh, my husband. And we've been here for 17 years now. And mm. it's a really wonderful place to be an artist and part of the community and have a family, actually. There's a lot of creative people here, a lot of writers and artists. So there, there's a, a lot of cross-pollination, actually. And because it's a fairly small community, we end up talking to each other and I think kind of being an influence for each other mm. as a community. So I feel really lucky to be here and be able to show uh, at Davidson and to live uh, to live on Bainbridge. Wonderful. To get a little more context uh, before we dive into talking about your current practice, tell us a little bit about your early childhood influences, what place art had in that period of your life. So I grew up in New Haven, Connecticut. My parents were both in the sciences. My dad was a geology professor at Yale and my mom taught in an inner city high school. She taught biology and chemistry. And I have two sisters, I'm the middle um, of two sisters. And we were really encouraged to ask questions and be creative and um, really learn about the world in a lot of different ways. So I feel really lucky in that way. My father died when he was 50 and I was 17, but he's really remained a, a very important influence for me because he was curious about everything. And so I just have these wonderful memories of talking about uh, history and um, art and science and cooking. And, you know, mm. he just he had a real joy, as my mother does. She, she's, she's a really wonderful person and very funny and also curious about everything. So I, I kind of hit the jackpot in terms of parents. <laughs> And I think it allowed me to, the confidence to develop kind of in my own way. And I, I didn't know that I'd become an artist. Um, I, I actually ended up deciding to be an artist when I had almost graduated from college. I thought maybe I'd be in science or, and then I became an art history major. And I, and I actually think the art history aspect of my education has been really important, both as an artist and as a teacher. So I have a very large collection of art history books, <laughs> which I draw on heavily. So I feel like I still have that encouragement coming from my family and actually from my husband as well, because he's very supportive of who I am as an artist as well. Yeah, that's wonderful. And then, so you, as you mentioned, you had been trained as a painter, but how did you come to printmaking? Yeah, so I, I was a painter for about 10 years. I, I actually have an MFA in painting as well. And I think I was probably allergic to paint the entire time that mm. I was a painter. I would get really severe headaches. And um, and this was in the 80s where people were not using um, ventilation or gloves. Mm. Um, you know, I, I associated the the discomfort that I felt physically with painting just, just as kind of part of the process. But, and I, I just kept going because I really did love the medium. In my late 20s, I ended up moving to Taos, New Mexico, and was invited to make prints uh, with hand graphics. And I printed for the first time. I made monotypes for the first time. And I just fell in love with the process of monotype. Mm. And some light went off for me. And and I didn't, I didn't switch from painting. I was still painting at that point. But 
there was something that happened when I started making monotypes that just opened up a different part of me. I think it was something about the process of rolling out the ink and wiping away to reveal the image and not knowing how multiple layers would, uh, you know, what kind of image you'd make by doing multiple layers. Um, there was something about that relationship with the press that was just thrilling to me. And I think it would, I think it made me more relaxed and more intuitive kind of in my process. So mm -hmm. I, I was both a painter and a print printmaker for about four years. And then you just gave painting up at one point? Yeah. So I went back to DC to get my MFA in, at American University in, in DC. And after a, a two-year program in painting, moved to Seattle. And, um, and at that point, I just realized that I, my love was really in, in printmaking. Mm -hmm. And I felt a kind of freedom and uh, curiosity about making um, monotypes that I, I just didn't feel, I didn't continue to feel that with painting. Mm -hmm. And so I kept thinking I would go back to painting, but my heart was in, you know, in printmaking at that point. And I think because my training is almost entirely in painting and not in monotype and not in printmaking, I, I just felt like I could experiment and figure things out kind of in my own way. And I had this like, just a very kind of playful experimental way of approaching um, monotype that was very different than how I felt um, as a painter. Mm. You know, I felt, I think I felt the burden of the history of painting in yeah. a very different way. And so I just ended up uh, shifting towards the thing I actually really wanted to do and noticing that in myself and, and, and just, you know, trusting myself that that's actually what I wanted to do. Yeah, I think that's huge. I've it, Conversations that I've been having with people sometimes get to a point where they almost say, and at that point I gave myself permission to do this. Mm. And I think that that's something that is true in art, but in many aspects of our lives when we do feel a pull through something, but towards something, but we've got this narrative in our heads about what, what will people think of me or is this really yeah. what I want? And then at some point they eventually just say, no, I can do this. And, and people aren't really waiting for you to make anything in particular. Mm. I mean, that's what I realized too. <laughs> it was really whatever I wanted to do. And then th there is, I think, a lot of power in the work when you're really engaged. Yes. And that is one of the things that cannot be artificially cultivated about yeah. art making. You can't fake that. And yeah, that's and true. It's the magic. It is. It is. It's the 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 aura. It's everything. And and I think that that's one of the things that when I get in conversations with people about how do I get seen in a gallery is is it's really just keep making the work until it's something yeah. that you love. And then when someone sees it, they will love it too. And it's a really interesting side of art that I think really does make up the magic of it when, when you talk about art making in those terms. So yeah. I think that your work just doesn't look like a typical monotype when you think of it. Mm. You know, and a lot of times some of the monotypes that you see more often have more of a watercolor feel to them. They've got a looseness to them and a layering that you yeah. see in that. Um, and kind of like a fast painting, yes. like a sketchy painting. Yes. Um, and I can say that from experience, working with your monotypes at Davidson, 
the number one thing they were always confused for was photographs. So, you know, <laughs> which always surprises me. <laughs> yeah, which from far away, which I think is interesting. You know, once yeah. you get up, you, your hand is very obvious. But when people walk in the gallery and they kind of just take that span from, you know, three meters away or something, they'll, they'll often say, are you, are you having a photography show? But <laughs> so they're, you know, they're, they're black and white landscape and they tend to have a really dynamic relationship between sky and earth and they've got a, a drama to them and almost sort of a moodiness to them. They don't look like other monotypes. And I think part of that maybe comes from directly what you were saying about, you know, having the formal training as a painter, but having the freedom as a printmaker, yeah. you've kind of developed really your own look and your own style. Yeah. I didn't printmaker. know what I didn't know. And I, yeah. I, um, and I took a lot of time to figure out technique, different techniques. I, I had a, a really strong feeling of wanting to create the equivalent of what I saw and experienced by looking at the sky. In a, in a way, it started with, I think, clouds in the sky and just the impossibility of trying to capture the volume and the movement and the emotion mm. of of this abstract world of the sky. And it just lodged in my, you know, being that I wanted to make an equivalent. And it wasn't like an impression. It wasn't, oh, I want to make something that looks exactly like, you know, this photograph. I just wanted to make that world. And I didn't really have the technique for it. My first skies, and I was older. I mean, I was 37 when I had my first child and 40 when I had uh, my second child. I really began making the monotypes, the, the tonal monotypes, the landscape monotypes in my late 30s. I was basically at home with my kids and I, would, I had some time, but I didn't have a huge amount of time. I had a lot of time to look. So driving around, being at the playgrounds, you know, just being a, a mom, I was, I was, if I wasn't looking at my kids, I was really, really looking around me and just absorbing kind of ordinary landscape around me. And then returning to my studio, and I began to have more time as the kids obviously like um, went to preschool and school and so on. And I, I just started playing with inks in different ways and rolling out these gradations and wiping away. And as I said, like the first ones were pretty clumsy and I, I kept a lot of my work. I just stack it because it, because it's all information for me. I don't, I, I'm very careful about what I show. I edit like crazy and I only let the work out that really feels fully resolved to me. But I had this like freedom and privacy to spend a lot of time just kind of going after imagery. And I was just fascinated. It was like, and I'm very, very process oriented. I wasn't worried about showing the work. I wasn't worried about whether it was any good. I just wanted to kind of see if I could make the images that felt true to my experience. And then very slowly, I felt like I began to kind of make work that felt more like my own work. And instead of saying, well, I, you know, I've always made these very colorful painterly landscapes, which was more my, my paintings, actually, I ended up um, really just following my, 
just my curiosity. And I ended up making work that was tonal and more specific, more, as he said, like more photographic. And that surprised me too, because that hadn't ever been true before. But I just didn't really question it. I just, I just kept following what I wanted to do. So I think it led me to really my own voice, maybe for the first time. And that felt, you know, really exciting. You know, that's, there's a few really interesting things in there. And, and, you know, one of them is when you're talking about, you know, trying to capture the experience of seeing clouds and, you know, not a photographic reproduction. What it reminds me of, and I may have even said this before to you about your work. So this anecdote that I heard once of when CGI in movies was really taking off and they were doing, you know, their first sea storm and they were trying to create the waves. They were looking at pictures of the ocean and they were just replicating what was there and it just didn't work. Yeah. It wasn't alive. It wasn't alive. And what they had to do was go back and look at the 17th century Dutch masters seascapes and imitate them because they were capturing what it was to experience looking at the ocean. And I think there's something similar going on in your cloudscapes for sure. And then the other one was that really interesting bit where you were sort of saying that when you became a mom and your primary job in life switches from artist to mother, at least for a period of time where you're in the business of keeping them alive in those young years, yes. it, <laughs> yep. sometimes that can be described as a really limiting time for female artists or a, a, a closing off time. But for you, it sounds like it really gave you this freedom to think about making for making's sake without the narrative of where is this going? When's my next show? Who's going to see this? Um, And so I love that. You know, one of the, I haven't had kids, but one of the ways that it's been explained to me that makes the most sense is someone saying, you're no longer the protagonist in your story once you have (laughs) kids. And it seems like if that was the case, it, it, it really became a time where you got to just be the scientist, just be the experimenter with your work and came out the other side with something really brilliant and unique and allowed you to, to come to Davidson really fully cooked was the way I always thought of you as you, you just sort of showed up with this body of work that had been already curated because as you said, you're careful about what you show um, and was, was really fully formed in a beautiful way. I think I, I was very present as, as, as a mom and I was incredibly tired and didn't have an internal life particularly, you know, it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't like overtly creative, but it didn't really need to be like, it was, I mean, the creative part was, was obviously, you know, having the kids and then being with them. But I think what it did was make me relaxed and unselfconscious and, and just um, able to respond to, to, you know, just kind of instinct, maybe very in- instinctual, I think. So as I had more and more time, I think I was able to just follow my own inclinations because I wasn't looking over my shoulder. I was um, trusting myself. 
Yeah. And so even though I lost a certain amount of time, perhaps <laughs> it, that was okay because I just was different when I emerged after having kids the first, you know, five years or so. I just think things things opened in a very different way for me. Yeah. Um, I didn't I didn't have as much doubt, and I didn't have and I was less neurotic about my own work because I was I was a, um, a pretty relaxed mom. I didn't I didn't second guess. I wasn't a hyper mom. <laughs> I I think because I grew up with parents who really enjoyed um, being parents and Mm. kind of took us on their adventures, I just kind of leaned into that. And then I think it helped my art process where I was more um, judgmental about myself and and kind of uh, more self-critical. And so I think I was calmer and more present when I returned to the studio in a a more uh, kind of serious way. And that, you know, and I've heard other women describe parenthood kind of in similar terms that that there's almost a a release that happens when you're not so focused on yourself all of a sudden and there it's like it's really a, a gift in a way that all of this control that you thought that you had over your own narrative goes completely out the window and if you can just wave goodbye good riddance and see it go a lot of other things can open up. So I, mm-hmm. I love that. That's great. <laughs> um, so, we, so we talked a little bit about the actual physical form that your work takes. Um, at one point, we were talking about how, and this is probably clear to anyone who's been listening, that you are, you are very lovely and bright and positive, and your work has again, that kind of moodiness, and we were talking about it. I make it. cheerfully, cheerfully moody paintings. Yeah. <laughs> and, and at one point, I remember... Prince. You, yeah, Prince, yeah. Uh, but it's, at one point, I remember you saying something like, well, I just kind of can, like, get that out in my art practice, you know, that it's, it's like a... It's an, almost like an exorcism or something. <laughs> Well, you know, I think I think it's what I find beautiful. I mean, a lot of a lot of the work um, that I love from you know artists and art history um, are are kind of gritty and um, you know dramatic. And I love Rembrandt and Wyeth, uh, Degas, um, and so it's a kind of sensibility. And I've always been drawn to that too. Um, so I'm not deliberately trying to make it moody or um, it, it's it's more what I'm drawn to, I think. And part of it, I'm very interested in tension, though. So the tension between, you know, the sky and the rock, the, you know, the relationship between the trees and the clouds that I think of it in some ways as well, maybe I, I guess as a drama in some ways, because they're like characters, although I don't want it to be explicit. I don't even think of it in this, you know, this is the, I don't give them personalities exactly, but I want the world that I make to feel alive and mysterious on some level and not just be a reproduction of nature. I, I, I want it to have um, secrets. And I'm also interested in creating a kind of spare landscape. So I, I take out a lot. Um, but so then what I leave needs to have, I think, a lot of power, or a lot of, you know, there needs to be tension in there or else it's a single note, you know, because there, it's not a really, there, there, there isn't loads and loads in the pieces. It is, it is quite spare. So if I take out 
too much or the different elements don't have a kind of energy, it just won't hold your attention. It won't hold my attention. So I tend to work in layers and I'll make these more atmospheric um, skies or, you know, could be the opposite, the, the lands. And if they don't have, if they're not really believable to me and they just feel like a background, I won't use them. They have to have a kind of light and energy and kind of mystery for me before I then print the landscape into them. So it's it's like taking these distinctly different techniques and images and then fusing them in some way and making something that I can't really entirely predict. So I love that relationship of the press because I I can't see it until I've made it. And I allow each of those different processes to be distinctly different. Um, so when I make the atmospheric skies, it's, it's a subtractive method and I'm rolling out uh, large gradations of um, black and transparent ink and then wiping away to, to kind of reveal the form. And then with the landscape, I'm rolling, that's the additive technique and I'm, I'm rolling ink onto, the, to, onto another plate and then using credit cards and brushes and toothbrushes and so on um, to create the landscape. And they're made so differently that there's something about when combined that I, I think it's still kind of magical to me in the sense that I, I just can't predict how it's gonna work. And a lot of my work is not successful. There's, there's many pieces that I just, it's a numbers thing. I have to just make a lot to really get what I want. And I can't, I can't can't be too controlling because then it loses its life. And so mm. I'm, I have to be on the edge of some kind of chaos or <laughs> just, there has to be enough kind of muscular energy to make it interesting. And yeah. so, so I can tip into it being, um, just too out of control and not coming together. Or sometimes it, I, I hang on to the control too long and it, it's kind of dull. And so it's this funny line that I'm, I kind of play with, I think, that um, keeps it interesting for me. Yeah. And that's, that's a really wonderful way to articulate what really does make your images so interesting. And your ability to, to self-select and be self-critical of the work is something I've always really admired. And I can, you know, it's one of those things where talking about you coming sort of fully cooked to Davidson. <laughs> you know, when we go for, the owner and I would go for a studio visit with you and you'd have your work laid out. We'd always just sort of look at it and be like, oh, okay, there's the show. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, it's it's great. And, and I think it's something that all artists and writers and musicians and anyone really should try and cultivate more because it makes your practice so much more rich. And I think interesting when you find that space between being just a very astute observer and being overly critical, right? Like that's the balance because at a certain, you can't get to the point where you're just so nitpicky of your work that you're just paralyzed from making anything. But you need to be able to to just say, would I want to look at this more? Would I want to read this? I think um, one of the things about getting older for me is that my internal voices are much kinder towards myself. You know, I think I was really highly critical and it didn't, it, it, and that's not a bad thing, but it can stop you, as you said, from making, which can just feel like every move needs to have meaning or needs to already be good. I think once I realized that I needed to make a lot of work in order to get what I wanted, when I'm making work, I often actually talk out loud and I'll be like, 
wow, that really didn't work. And, <laughs> and I'm not being upset with myself. I'm like, why didn't that work? But it's, it's out of a kind of like curiosity as opposed to, you know, that's terrible. Blah, 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 blah. You know, it's, yeah. it's very, um, I stay engaged. I'm a better coach to myself now than I was when I was younger, where I, it, it could just be, oh, a disaster. And I'm able to stay with myself and take chances because it's not that big a deal. If it doesn't work, I'll just like try it again. Yeah, and that's that's such an important skill to have, I think, is to snip the cord between something that you create being unsuccessful and some kind of moral judgment on your personhood. Which... <laughs> You've got to deload it. <laughs> you do, you do. But it's that can be so hard. You know, one of the, the things that people talk about, you know, like, with the kids these days, everyone getting a trophy, you know, that constant thing that people talk about. I do wonder if they're not being given the opportunity to disentangle that because they, they're not being motivated to. They're not getting the owl that then makes you dive in and kind of say, oh, maybe it doesn't need to be owl. What if it wasn't? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you don't need to be perfect. You, you actually really need to fail a lot to do anything original. And I, I really embrace that. I love that. So one of the other things that I, I wanted to chat with you about was one of the things that I've heard you say before is that you're drawn to that kind of vastness of skies. Yeah. But here you are in Western Washington <laughs> with some of the smallest skies, I think. <laughs> Maybe in the There's world. a lot of trees. A lot There's of trees a lot of trees and a lot of overcast. So I know that you travel for your work as well, or, or or maybe when you travel, it influences your work. Anything maybe between that that connection between traveling and and inspiration and documentation. Well, you know the funny thing about my the pieces from Hawaii is that they really look like the Northwest. <laughs> I'm not doing the typical Maui scene. That's um, true. <laughs> you know, I found, I found these, you know, uh, windswept trees that already look like something that I had seen in some way. I mean, um, so I, 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 and even the, the, the pieces that I did influenced by Norway, you know, in a way felt like where I live now too. So I think travel is really important and I love to travel, but I don't, feel like I need to travel to make my work. You know, I love just seeing landscape in different parts of the world. Um, we were in Spain last summer and, and, um, and that was, you know, just thrilling, but I didn't end up actually making work from, um, that trip, even though I photographed a lot. And I think part of it is that I really like going deep with where I live and what I know. Mm -hmm. And so I keep returning to probably one of the inspirations for me is um, the Nisqually wetlands, um, which is about an hour and a half from where I live here um, in Olympia, Washington. I, I really love returning over and over again to places and seeing them in different ways. And so I don't need a kind of an entirely different landscape, I think, to be inspired in some ways, like a lot of the things are variations on work that I've done or a different angle or a different, you know, kind of light quality. And it's kind of just going deeper um, as opposed to shifting entirely. And I think, again, though, the, the funny thing about Nisqually, because I know it, it's, it's really beautiful. It is, though, one of the few places in Western Washington you can find a vast sky. 
because it's so that, and I and I drive for the skies. I yeah. drive to Port Townsend, which is about an hour away, because I do want to see open, wide open spaces. And I think the four years I spent in Taos, New Mexico, was a big influence yeah. too. Although at the time I didn't know how to kind of make work about that wide open space. I didn't really have the ability to do that yet. So it'd be interesting to actually return there and 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 make work from there. But I think I seek it out. So and, and where I live on Bainbridge, there's a lot of trees, but I look up a lot. So <laughs> I'm I'm driving and if there's a sky, I will pull over and photograph. <laughs> and often I'm combining, um, it's not one place that I'm making. It's not really about one place. So it may be clouds from I don't know, one visit and um, wetlands from another place. And I feel like I'm combining a, a lot of different things to make my own kind of my own uh, world. So it's not meant to be yeah. an impression or um, or even exactly about that place. In a lot of ways, I think they're kind of internal landscapes. And I'm like struck by various things as I kind of go about my day and then bring things together in a way that feels true to me. I feel like that is a, a great place to wrap up. So thank you for chatting with me and being your wonderful, articulate, open self about your practice. And I definitely look forward to sharing this with everyone. Well, a real pleasure, Miranda. Look forward to uh, talking with you again soon. Yeah, thank you. Well, that's our show for this week. Tune in again in two weeks' time when my guest is Patrick Wagner of Blackheart Press. We talk guerrilla lithography teaching groups, what you do when a fire destroys your entire archive of prints, getting in touch with Nigerian printmakers for a chat, and the connections we make across the press bed and across the world. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing help from Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you in two weeks.